I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're on Team Human, where people are worth more than the sum of their parts. A conscious intervention in the autonomous engines of digitally amplified capitalism and an invitation to foster the essential human drive for connection, collaboration, and dare we say it, love. That's right. It's book tour week and we're feeling open to anything. I'm Douglas Rushkoff and you're on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, my friend, neighbor, and occasional mentor, author and teacher Seth Godin. What would I do? I felt like I had enough. How could I be generous and pay it to my tribe? Now, this show is a little different in that instead of me interviewing my guest, my guest is interviewing me. It's a live event recorded at Betaworks Studios in New York City, a little preview party we threw for the book launch. Thanks to everyone who came, and especially to Seth Godin for encouraging me to think of tribal leadership as less of a claim than a service. I'll be traveling the U.S. and London over the next few weeks. If you want to attend an event like this one, just go to teamhuman.fm to see my whole schedule. I hope to see you live and in person. You can also read my weekly column and listen to our archive of shows at Medium. Meanwhile, here's me and Seth Godin at Betaworks Studios, January 8th, 2019. I emailed Seth yesterday, I guess, to give sort of a run of show. And I said, oh, well, I'll like read like the intro, the preface of the book, and then something you know, particularly about like algorithms or something digital for these folks. And then you can come on, and then we can talk. And he's like, oh, fine, but please don't read. <laughs> no, well, I saw the exclamation point. So I was trying to imitate that. And I thought, you know, he's right. I've never read at a reading. I've never actually read. I've always spoken. 
And then I thought, well, why is it that I wanted to read at this one? And on a certain level, it's because, okay, I, I really love this book. I feel like it's my last book, Capstone, End of Career. This is the mic drop, right? And I'm going to read it. It's like, and because it's these little sections, but really, why? Why, when I have the opportunity to be in a room with actual people and make eye contact, why do I want to bury my head in an industrial age object, right? Which is fine to do, but why would I do it when, when the function of this is an, a great industrial age codec for distribution of my words and my ideas when I can't be there? Fine, great. But how would I then take a live event and surrender it to the industrial age codec? Why would I do that? Right? And that's, that's the reversal that I'm so interested in, where figure becomes ground and ground becomes figure. The book is the excuse to get in the room and be with people. So then when I get in the room with people, I'm going to go read the book. What happened there? What happened there? I mean, and, and honestly, this book, and this part of why I wanted you here, I wrote this book because of Seth Godin. Because that's two books ago, not last book, two books ago, we're walking on somewhere and he said, you got to, Doug, you got to, uh, you got to, you know, find your tribe. I know his book, Tribes, it's, it's a life-changing book if you read it. If you don't read it, it's not life-changing. Um, <laughs> well, maybe it is. I don't know. That, that this was, the point of this, I mean, so it's team human, is to, is to find the tribe. Right, to find the tribe and gather the people. And then if they're in the room and they're here, well, that, now what do I want to do? You know, well, what I actually want to do is look at that moment. So what is it that would lead me to want to read this to you instead of be with you? Well, one, because I want to sell the friggin' things, right? This is, this is business. I bought 100 books to give them out to see the thing and mimetically whatever. You know, I've got a career. I want to make money. Right, so I want to make money so that, okay, don't just talk to these people, don't waste the moment, sell the book. <laughs> right, there's that. There's also the fear, you know, we all have the fear of the actual other people. Can you actually just be with people? What if you just be with them? You know, what if I have nothing to say? If I have nothing, if I can't think of anything to say, what would I do if I was actually with people? I would ask them, well, what do you want to talk about? Do I have the guts to do that? I once did, you know, I was in Austin once and I, Figured out what I'll do. I'll get a whiteboard, and I'm going to ask the audience, what are, five, what are the five things they care most about in that moment? And then just write them down, and then give a talk that answers those five challenges. Kind of as, I mean, there's a little showmanship in that. But it's also, it was a way of trying to be with the actual people in there. But I'm thinking, if this book, if this industrial age object can get me to want to surrender my moment to it, and it's not even trying to do that, right? It's just doing that. I'm, I'm projecting that onto that. Now we live in a world where this book is an algorithm, or this book is an app, or this book is a platform that is actively attempting to get me to surrender this to it. It knows, oh, Doug's worried about money. Let's leverage that to get him to do this instead of that. Oh, Doug's worried. We just heard him. He just said he's worried maybe he won't have anything to say with these people or he's a little nervous about eye contact, whatever. Let's use that to get him to do this instead of that. Because as long as he's doing this, as long as he's engaged with the algorithm, then we can play with him. Right? Then we can extract his money or his data or whatever it is that we want from him. If you're just spending time engaged with another person, you're an enemy of the market, right? 
You know, if you're just playing cards, not, not digital, just cards, where's the, how do they, they're not tracking. There's no values being, if you spent the two bucks on the deck, it's done. So I'm really interested in how, again, a book that was meant, a, the book that is meant to connect people can end up separating people. How a technology that may have, at least when I was there, that seemed to be about connecting people in new ways, has atomized us instead. How do these reversals happen? And then how do we retrieve the human and embed our digital infrastructure, embed the digital future with our human values before we forget what they are altogether, right? before we disconnect, before we surrender to the algorithmic logic? Part of it is that we've surrendered to an understanding of humanity, an industrial age understanding of humanity, that human beings are valuable in terms of their, their utilitarian function. That I'm, I'm, I'm valuable as utility, but not valuable somehow intrinsically just for being alive. I mean, I'm lucky, I was a Mr. Rogers kid, so I used to watch him say every time, you're special just the way you are. And I really believe, oh, it's me. I mean, maybe it's some bad boomer thing. I've been programmed in a terrible way, but I actually believe that no, I have intrinsic value as a person, that each of us has intrinsic value. And that the way we actually discover that intrinsic value is through connection with others. That being human is a team sport. That evolution is not the story of the survival of the fittest individual. That evolution is the story of, this, of the triumph of the most collaborative species. Right? If human beings are the, most, are, are the most evolved species, it's because we have the most advanced ways of collaborating with one another. Just as trees share resources with each other underground through a network of mycelia, they're not competing with each other for, for sunlight, it turns out. They're giving sunlight to the ones that are in the shade, as long as there's real soil under them, not just dirt. And that's another story. Human beings, we come up with all these great inventions to connect us to one another, whether it's language, or text, or TV, or radio, or the internet, or social media. And each one of them, it seems, reverses in its purpose. So instead of us making digital tools to express what we want, we make digital tools to get us to conform to what they want. And that would be fine if the things that they want were really the things that we want. But they're not really the things that we want. We're not programming them to help people connect more meaningfully to one another. That's not why we're taking the algorithms from Las Vegas slot machines and using them in our social media feeds. We could be. And that would be pretty powerful, huh? We could be. Sometimes we decide to, but then we, we, we lose track. And I wouldn't want people to think I've got a problem with digital technology. I don't. I don't have a problem with digital technology. I don't even really have a problem with capitalism in small doses. But when we take digital technology and decide that its purpose is to promote the agenda of capitalism, to extract value from people and places and convert it into share price, we end up with a world that's, that's having some issues. Right? And our algorithms are teaching us, rather than to see other people as potential friends and allies, to, to, to establish a cohort, a grand conspiracy of humans, our algorithms are teaching us to see one another as enemies, as opponents, as competitors, as red state people, as less than human. You know, just because they see you as less than human doesn't mean you have to see them as less than human. They're just scared humans. You know, the thing I keep saying in this book, I mean, and it's the theme on the back, find the others. 
And on the one hand, I mean that in the tribal way. And that's the first part of it. How do I find the others, the other people who want to be human, the other people who want to retrieve great human values, the other people who understand that our utilitarian value is not as, as valuable as our real value? How do I find them? And that's fine. You know, you put a flag in the sand. You write a book. You do a podcast. You say, hey, let's gather. Here we are. But then how do you find the others, the actual other? The ones who don't want to be here, the, the real opponent. How do you find them? How do you see the human being in them? And that's the part that's a lot scarier and weirder for us. You know, that's the part that, that when you start talking about the logic of the supposed other side, of, well, don't you see what they're saying? This is how they feel. That's when you start getting in trouble and people's angry tweets. Oh, no, you're an apologist. You're this, you're that. You no, know, I refuse to buy the, the, the you know, Facebookification of the other. Now, I would much prefer we build a social media platform that instead of teaching us to see other people as enemies, that helps us see enemies as other people. I mean, imagine that. And we can reverse the, these, these artifacts as, as readily as the artifacts themselves reversed. I mean, by reversal, I'll just give one example. Take um, education. You know, most of us now, I'm teaching at CUNY, and the thing everybody asks about is, how are we going to get these kids jobs? And the president of the university goes and meets with the heads of corporations to find out, what do you need? What skills do you need? How do we prepare them for your, to get to work at IBM or Cisco or wherever it is? What do they need? It's not the purpose of public education. You know what public education was invented for, really? And, you know, really back in England, when they were educating, what was that for? It was so that the coal miner could live a life of dignity. They're working in the coal mine all day. At least they can come home and read a novel at night. At least they could read the newspaper, vote intelligently. But it wasn't an extension of work. It was compensation for work. And now what are we turning it into? We're turning it into job training. We're turning it into a corporate externality. As if the purpose of education is to train you for your work on the job. It's not. That's a reversal. That's a reversal of figure and ground. Right? It's the same thing that happened with money, where money was here to help us transact, then money became this thing that you try to collect in, your, in its own right. You know, money was here to serve markets, but it reversed. And the same thing, I feel, is happening with our technology. We can't help it. You know, we come up with a great idea, and then we take too much VC, and then all of a sudden, the technology is there to serve the investor. And all those great ideas you had for, oh, users could do this and users can do that. No, no, no. Your users are now the used, right? The figure in the ground got reversed. And we have such a big technology industry. I mean, I think it's worse in Silicon Valley than here. I used to go to San Francisco for a spiritual recharge. Now I go there, I feel like I'm a friggin' rabbi. <laughs> you know, it makes Wall Street really look like, look like Esalen. And I do feel like, and that's part of why I'm really happy to be here, is the, sort of the launch of this thing. I feel like New York can offer an alternative vision of the role of technology in human affairs. We can develop technology differently. You know, maybe it's because we live through the stock market, we live with Wall Street, we understand what it's about. So we know how to temper the needs of capital with the needs of actual humans. We know how to live in a city together. So I'm really, I'm really interested, you know, both for this talk that we're going to have now, as well as um, engaging, engaging with you all, both tonight and as we, as we move forward. 
you know, to see about how can we embed our digital technology with human values? How can we find big capital R reasons for doing the stuff we do, rather than sort of little r reasons, little utilitarian functions for what we do? You know, we don't, we, Bitcoin might be a great thing, the blockchain might be great, we don't need a better ledger, right? We don't need a better ledger, we need something else. Right? We need to actually reconnect people with one another and with the, the, the reasons for, for being here, the reasons for, for, for what we're doing. Now, there's no point in, in uploading our consciousness to a chip or something. That's not the future of humanity. That's the future of something else. Now, I believe that humans have a place. That's the argument I always get in when I'm on these panels with the singularity people. And I always argue, oh, but humans are special. We have, we'd have a role. We should be here. It matters. We matter. We're weird. We're quirky. We can sustain ambiguity and ambivalence. And think about David Lynch. We're weird, right? <laughs> and they say, and this one guy said to me, oh, Rushkoff, you just say that because you're a human. <laughs> As if it's hubris. And that's when I said, fine, dude. I'm on team human. I am on team human. That's where I came up with that little meme. I am on team human. I'm not going to be ashamed. I'm on team human. You know, win, win or lose or draw. You know, I'm on, I'm on team human. That's okay. You know, the only people who think that human, that, that human consciousness is reducible to a silicon wafer are computer scientists. Talk to any neuroscientist and they're like, we have no idea what consciousness is. You know, and I trust, I trust them. I think we're weird. And that's another one of, of Seth's great, great uh, record albums, actually. <laughs> I think we're weird, and that the more we can embrace our weird, you know, and not be scared of that, and not be scared of each other, to learn to rely on each other. I mean, I was scared. I wasn't going to read. I didn't really prepare. But it's like, so I look for the love, and I feel it back. We mirror neurons fire, and the oxytocin goes through my body, and it's all good. And you're, yay, you know? And you get that in real spaces with real people breathing together. So thanks for that. And thanks, Seth, he's my neighbor. Can you believe that? Can you imagine having a neighbor like Seth Godin? He's my neighbor. Um, so please come up. Thank you so much for all you did. For, thank you for inspiring me to, to do this book. You know what the, the problem with the book is? Yeah. The problem with the book is it's not sneaky. Mm. That you need to read it with a marker, and you'll fill it with underlines, because every page is filled with screaming brilliance that's true. And because it's not sneaky, it's easy to put up our defense shields because we don't want to see it. Mm. Right? That there's a flaw in the system of culture that we built. And the flaw is that we're short-term thinkers and we hope that the long-term will take care of itself. But people with money and with technology are happier to play a longer game. And so behavioral economics is all about giving a sweet short-term thing so they can get us hooked on the slot machine in the long haul. And you've highlighted this for several of your works. But this one, this is the capstone. And you should sell 25 million of them. Mm -hmm. And 10 million should be stolen from bookstores everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but there are no bookstores. So sorry. <laughs> it was a good try, though. Anyway, where do you want to start, man? I want to start with, start with an advice thing. So yeah, I, I, in this book, I worked hard to hit the nail on the head and not to play the usual games, right? And I figured, you know, that way it becomes like one big mic drop. You know, it's like, okay, here you go. This is what I've been saying all these years. I love you. 
fuck you, whatever it is. You know, it's boom. Um, and, and unlike the, all the other books, it's not about something. You know, I, I always found a topic for a book, and this one I just did, Embrace the Tribe and all that. We're in the pre-publicity moment of this book, you know, calling when you call, all the places and all. I've got more bottom-up interest in this book than I ever had for anything. More emails coming in from real people. Can I talk to you? This, that. I'm interested in this thing. More of that than I've ever seen. But like zero NPR, um, TV, uh, 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 New York Times, all the stuff that I was used to, like the hints that this is going to work, they're just like radio silence. And is this just because we're in like Trump land and everybody's crazy now, so it's different? Or is, is when you engage with your tribe for real, do you almost have to ignore the generic top-down national media and just be with your people? You always have to ignore them now. <laughs> they don't have the power that they used to. Right. Right? That you can be on the cover of a magazine and sell 12 copies of a book now. That's not what makes something move through the culture. And you know, my son called me up yesterday and he said, is Doug happy because everything he's been saying is so true, everyone's talking about it now. The Facebook thing and the Google bus thing and everything else. And I said, Doug's never happy. Let's just get that out of the way. <laughs> but Doug is right in that there's this significant dislocation going on that even the kids, the 22-year-olds, the 28-year-olds, I think, you know what? This isn't giving me the joy that it used to give me. And my short-term hit isn't working anymore because I'm becoming tolerant of it. It's not enough. You know, so one thing that I would love to try for everybody here, put your device away for just one second if you can. One thing that um, we have this expression, which we only use for sad events, which is something called a moment of silence. Hmm. And I just want to try this for a second. If we could just have a moment of silence. For me, what's really cool about that is it's different than sitting in a room by yourself silently because you are in the presence of fellow travelers. You were in the presence of people you trusted enough to have your back to them. You're in, the, you're in a place of possibility. And what the networks have done is eliminated all moments of silence. And that's what you're onto. And you've been onto it for a while. The question is, the artifact, how does it come to spread? Mostly, what do you want people to do? Because you certainly don't want people throwing things at self-driving cars. I don't think you meant no. that you want people throwing things at self-driving cars. So what do you want people to do? Depends where, I guess. I want in people to take the opportunity in whatever field they're in to engage with the other people who are there. You know, I want... Uh, uh, I want teachers in the classroom to turn off the smart board and take the iPads away and model learning live for students. So when they came up with the shovel, a lot of people who were making a living digging with their bare hands were upset because now the shovel is so much more efficient that they don't have as much work digging with their bare hands. The difference is that the shovel industry didn't take over everything. Right. right. Once we had a few shovels, we used shovels when we needed shovels, but the shovels weren't always saying, wait, can I help you cook breakfast? Right. <laughs> right. So some people are saying to you, no, 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 you're, it's like telling people to put the shovel away. 
that digital makes things so much, I can find the nearest place. I, I need this in my pocket. So are you asking people to have self-restraint? Heaven forfend? On a certain level, yeah, because there is a multi-trillion dollar industry that is uh, speaking through these devices. You know, that is, that, sure. that's, that's using behavioral finance and everything else it can to get people addicted or using them over other things. But I almost just want people to taste eye contact again, to taste that being in a room in silence again, to, to listen to me, to listen to music. You know, the music, they pipe it in everywhere. You can't even have a conversation because that, and music is serving the opposite function of what music was for. You know, so music is now making it so we can't engage with one another. Where music is like this super sacred thing. Yeah, it's, it's that, and I, I'm, it depends where they are and what they're doing. But yeah, it's to take those, it's to take those opportunities to breathe together, to look at others, to, to, I mean, it's almost in any, in any career. I'm, I'm talking to Hollywood people these days. I'm trying to get, that's why I bring up David Lynch all the time, trying to get them to stop thinking of their shows as these sort of measured IP landmines. You know, that you get to episode seven and then, oh, boom, there's a spoiler. You know, you're now you're not allowed to share it with anybody. So TV, which used to be this thing we could talk about, I can't talk about it with anybody because you're on season four, episode three, and I'm on season six, episode nine, and it's like, oh, and I can't, I can't ruin that piece of IP for you. Since when is a great, except for a murder mystery, when was great art, when did great art have spoilers? It's like, oh, I can't tell you about that Van Gogh painting. Spoiler, spoiler alert, the stars have little twirls on them. Spoiler, sorry. <laughs> you know, and that's, I feel like, and that's again, that's the infiltration of kind of capital into, into, our, cre into our creativity, that it's the value is that those little IP bombs. So, so have you ever seen the picture, uh, they're not hard to find now, of what it's like around the Mona Lisa now? Because everyone is, has their back to her. They go with their back to her so they can take a picture like this. And it, you can imagine how heartbroken she is. Like she's, big on, she's big on social media, but it's still not fun. Yeah, it's great. I want you know, Walter Benjamin to come back, you know, the work of art in the age of, uh, of, of iPhone reproduction. So uh, let, right, but what are they doing? I mean, it's so interesting. Let, let they are just, trying to document that, that their body was there in the presence of that aura. They, they, there's something beautiful, I mean, sick in it, but there's something beautiful about it, too. But when I saw the Pope, the poor Pope, when he was, um, is, I guess he came here, and he's trying to, he's there to be with the people, and everybody is not even looking at him, but they're, it was just so, so bizarre. Okay, so we're going to go back to the Middle yeah. Ages, or maybe before, because I think some people here don't yeah. have the full grounding. So you are the head of the Middle Ages Appreciation Society. So yeah. start there. Tell us why the Middle Ages were the best time humans ever lived. They weren't. He really believes this. No, they weren't the best time humans ever lived. There was a, a moment of opportunity after the Crusades when all these guys came back from all their horrible wars and they had, had incidentally opened up trade routes with all these other countries and they brought back a lot of innovations, a lot of them from Moorish uh, what we now call Arab places. And one of the innovations they brought back was the bazaar, which we call the marketplace. And the marketplace in late medieval Europe, it launched a new 
period of economic growth, not like Google growth, but real growth, where former peasants who had only been able to work the land for lords now were going to the marketplace and trading and selling, and, uh, and, and there was a, a, a money system, because they used local currencies and market monies that expired after the end of one day. We, they had an economy that was really uh, uh, optimized for the velocity of transactions. And people got really wealthy. People, that's when we got the middle class. And the burghers became what they called the bourgeois. But the problem was, as the people got wealthy, the aristocracy got relatively poor. The aristocracy, those families hadn't created value in, in 10 centuries. These were the former lords. So what they wanted to do was shut down the growing economy of the late Middle Ages. And they did that with two things. One, the chartered monopoly or the proto-corporation, and that basically said that nobody is allowed to be in this industry except my friend. So if you were a shoemaker, you had to stop being a shoemaker. Your small business is gone. Now you have to go work for Seth's shoe company, His Majesty's. Don't wrap me started, up in this. Well, sorry. <laughs> well, it would be a good thing, I mean, but for whoever, too, you've got to now go work for, you get a job, and now you're punching the clock. That's when they put the clock on the tower in the middle of the medieval town. Now you're working for wages. You're selling your time instead of selling the value that you're creating. And that's when it also became advantageous for the person who owns that shoe company to go to the Home Depot parking lot and hire the, the least qualified uh, person with the least amount of power. You don't want a skilled merchant. You want someone you can train in 15 minutes, because then you can fire him that day and bring in someone else. So that's when we got the assembly line and mass production. And, and the industrial age was really not about making things faster or better. It was about making things with less skilled labor. And that really came all the way through today, this understanding of business as a way to really remove humans from the equation, not to let people create value for you, but just to extract value from them. And uh, yeah, and that was when, you know, and it was, it was when people had to go to the cities for jobs, and then of course all the uh, uh, subjugation of women, that we got the plague, and that's, you know, they blamed that on the Middle Ages, but that was really the beginning of the Industrial Age, when all of these problems, all of these health issues started to arise because, you know, people were no longer uh, living and trading. So yeah, I look at that not as a great time, because you could still, you know, people would throw a rock and hit you in the head. I watch Game of Thrones. I know the medieval times weren't or that good. Or Life of Brian, Monty Python. The yeah, 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 people running around with coconuts, I know. It was primitive. But, but on the other hand, there was an opportunity. And what I, what I get concerned about is that people think that corporate capitalism was some natural evolution of markets needing to grow when it was actually an effort by a few monarchs who have long since left the building to prevent middle class prosperity. And we still look at that. So our, our, our lawmakers still say, oh, we've got to get more jobs. And what do they mean, get more jobs? Get more jobs to them means we're going to get the banks to lend money. We're going to print money to give to banks so they can lend it to corporations, so they can build factories to get people jobs, to make stuff that nobody even needs. You know, and meanwhile, we're burning food every week and tearing down houses in California to keep market prices high rather than letting people live in them. Why? Because they don't have jobs. So jobs have become this way of justifying participation in the spoils of capitalism. They have nothing to do with actually creating value or the stuff, or the stuff that we need. The stuff that we actually need, you can't get jobs doing that, right? Like, like, like teaching and healthcare and all the stuff that we, the, all the face-to-face uh, uh, -face stuff that we actually, uh, that we need.
Okay, next idea. I got two more. So that's medievalism. I mean, that was good. Medieval's cool. That was good. Medieval. And now, that's you didn't why we get into the central banking. Yeah. We'll save that for another time. Yeah. All right. Next thing is Homo sapiens versus Neanderthals and this idea of cooperation versus selfishness, which you think is at the heart of what it means to be on Team Human. Well, you know, you could argue that Neanderthals are more cooperative than Homo sapiens. You could. But the, you they're know, not around for us to ask them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, we, I think we were mean to them. I think I'm we, sure yeah. we were. <laughs> but they were other. We didn't know. Um, sorry. <laughs> if we knew you were human, we would have baked a cake. So there was this growth in, yeah. the, growth in the human brain for no good right. reason other than? Right, other than communication. Right, we even, you know, we wouldn't choke on food. We actually sacrificed the, the uh, aspects of our windpipe and esophagus that get really dangerous just so that we'd be able to produce the sounds necessary to make human speech. So it was worth people dying to be able to speak. And it was, it was, our, it was really our, our, our communication and moreover, our ability to socialize with more than one or two or five or 10 people. That having a bigger brain let us have, you know, what, what's a Dunbar number of 100 or 110 people that we could actually keep track of at a given time. And it was that, it was, interestingly enough, it was actually our friends, our big friend group back then mattered more than your own family. We didn't really keep track of our family until we, we got sedentary, and that's when a lot of icky stuff happens. Because if you don't have a friend group, you're going to get killed and not have children. So right. Dawkins is sometimes misunderstood. We don't have a gene to be selfish. Right. Genes themselves want to reproduce, so they act in ways that help that gene. But the way they do that is by being connected. The hack of Twitter is there are people talking about you behind your back. You better check right now. Quick, pull out your phone. Someone's talking about you behind your back. We are programmed to do that. The problem is it's playing this long con. Right. Right, and that's what technology is really good at. So I'm arguing that there are you know, 500,000 years of evolved social mechanisms that, that are what allowed us to survive in the old days and what allow us, well, really to survive in these days too, but to have fun, to be human, to be alive, all the ways that we connect. Those, as far as digital technology is concerned or mean digital technology, those are exploits. Every single one of them. You know, the pupils getting larger make you bond to something or to someone. So how do we create the people getting larger effect on our algorithm? The sound of the baby crying. What about when your device is crying for you or doing the equivalent or tugging on that, on that string? So I, I do get concerned when our instincts are used as exploits. I mean, salesmen learn to do this. It's when you get a free gift. Isn't that hard when they send you like a buck? You ever get that? They send you a dollar or a quarter in the mail? It's like, what is it? Because they're trying to engender the instinct for you know, uh, uh, reciprocity. reciprocity. And it's, uh, uh, these, are, these are exploits. But again, exploits, the word exploit, it used to be my hacker friends talked about it when they were going to go break into the you know, shopping mall you know, thermostat system or something. Oh, there's an exploit, and we can do that. Now we're looking for exploits in humans. And of course, we've got tons of exploits. I mean, hypnotists do it for fun. Or, or and, and I guess religions have learned to do that over time. A brand manager sometimes know how to do that. But algorithms, they don't even care if they know. You know, there's a, a Facebook algorithm that figured out that people will click on pictures of their exes having fun. It's one of the things, one of the most surefire ways. 
I mean, duh, of course. I mean, you, you think about it later, but the algorithm doesn't know what that is. It just knows, I do this. It works. They click. You know, and, and we're off to the races. So it's not really machine learning. It's more the machine is hacking. It doesn't know. So right. the, the last big idea I wanted to share with you that let you talk about is this idea of sufficiency. Because by most measures, most people in the Western world have more than they did 100 years ago or 200 years ago and feel less sufficient than ever before mm. in history. And that feels to me like one of the worst short-term side effects of this long-term game that's being played on us, which is that we are walking around constantly juxtaposed with people who are better than us, more successful than us, more X than us, and so it creates this emotion of how do I take them down a notch? Mm. How do I catch up? How do I use this device more? As opposed to saying, what would I do if I felt like I had enough? How could I be generous and pay it to my tribe? And I think that is the real moral of mm. your work. You haven't called it out in so many words. That's why I wanted to tee it up for you. Yeah, I mean, it's meaningful to me on a number of levels. First off, we're filled, but with stuff that doesn't actually feed us. We're filled like with cheese doodles. And then wondering, why do I feel still so empty after I've eaten so many of these? It's like watching House of Cards, you know, an algorithmically concocted drama doesn't, it's like you watch it, and okay, I'll watch the next one, okay, I'll watch the next one, I'll watch, but it's like, it's just it's going through my body like styrofoam food. So, yeah, of course, we still feel, we still feel that empty, we can't get enough. And the, the other thing, and I talk a little bit in there about it, is partly our, te our technology community came out of California, and it came out of this, there was a, a, a spiritual landscape that stressed self-actualization as the highest spiritual ideal. Now, this was Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and you get up and you're self-actualized. What is self-actualization? There is no self, but there is no self. There's only you with the others. Self-actualization is this such an isolated, lonely, horrible thing, right? It's why you get billionaires, you know, the billionaires who are imagining themselves in the, in the doomsday bunkers that I talked about in the TED Talk, that's not a nightmare scenario for them. In some ways, that's the culmination. You know, I made it to Mars. I got away from the rest of them. I'm self-actualized, self. You can't actualize a self. And that's why it feels, you know, that's why it's, uh, we never quite get there. But right, you're right. It, it ends up engendering this kind of competitive spirit with the others rather than realizing that the others are, are, are what you want to actually engage with. You want to be with the others. But it's really hard. We don't, I mean, I talk a lot about in there about shame. You know, we don't talk about our salary with other people. That's some good social programming. If the workers start talking about their salaries, then they're going to start asking for more money. You know, we don't even have an assembly line to talk to each other on anymore. Now we're gig workers and there's no chat function on Uber. So we can't even forge the kind of solidarity we would need to understand the predicament that everybody else is in. You know, so, but, but letting down one's guard and saying, well, wait a minute, you know, I feel fundamentally dissatisfied the wealthier I get. That's interesting. And I wrote about that back in the old days that, you know, we used to live in, in, in Queens when I was a kid and there was one barbecue at the end of the block and we'd just bring our weenies down. It was this great, fun time. 
And then, you know, as we got wealthier, we moved to bigger houses, and instead of barbecuing with the Joneses, we were kind of barbecuing against the Joneses. It's like, we have porterhouse, they have filet mignon, we got tenderloins. And it's over the hedge, and you were alone, and you have the, what a weird, what a weird way to go. You know, that the wealthier you get, the more isolated you make yourself, the bigger your walls get. And that's, um, that's the opposite. Last thing I want to insert. Yeah. That was a great riff. We had a chance five years ago, and 10 years ago, and 15 years ago. We had a chance to learn how to program. We had, I ran one, a community where people could publish their own work. We have, right now, a chance for anybody to put their stuff into the world. And most people don't. So are we doomed? You know, it's interesting. There is that sort of 80-20 rule. The first time I felt that feeling was um, when we got cable TV, and I saw there was two channels called Public Access Community TV, and they have a studio, and anybody can make a show. And I was like, oh boy, what are they going to? And it was just dead all the time. Nobody did it. And it's like free to go in the thing and make TV for your whole town. I mean, it's like a, a, a almost it was like a science fiction dream. And nobody took it except like Robin Bird or something, you know. And that was, a, you know, like sex stuff or whatever. And uh, it, it was shocking. I mean, I, I'm into the sort of 80-20 rule. I think that's real. And I think, you know, with any service thing you do, there's going to be kind of 20% of the people that are interested in being creators and 80% who are going to be interested in being kind of uh, watchers, a little bit less, you know, less active. But the, the invitations that we are getting right now, at least as, as we experience them on the current, on the platforms that exist, the invitations we're getting to participate are not genuine. But they used to be. And we didn't take them. And that's right. the arc of my work and your work. It's like somebody needs to speak up, and here's a microphone. Right. And you're saying it one more time, but you're also saying, and if we don't hurry, they're going to take the microphone away. Well, this is it. I mean, this is it, I think. We, we really have the power to, to do some dangerous things to our survivability, to our sustainability, to our civilization. We could, we could you know, winnow this thing down to, I mean, a one billion, five hundred million. There's, you know, we're, we're at a high leverage point. This is an actual all hands on deck moment. I do think that poverty sometimes does lead to creativity. You know, I've seen more creative kinds. When I was in college, the best plays were always in those weird little basement theaters with lots of pillars that, you know, and that people come up with creative solutions to those things. So sometimes it's like, you know, we, we saw interesting, interesting co-ops and things during the Depression. And, but I, I do think that this last time, this last cycle, maybe it was the rapidity with which Bitcoin did its thing or that social media did its thing, that we've gotten to see the turn of the cycle that maybe used to take 200 years. We can see it happen now in like in two and three year spans. That's what gives me hope that, this, that the younger generation, the people growing up who have witnessed two or three turns of the cycle in one little lifetime, go, oh, I get it. They're just hamsters on a wheel. I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to, uh, and, and the thing that's different, and I hate to say it, and it's part of why I'm seeing this as a mic drop um, as a book, is you kind of have to stop feeling like, what you're doing doesn't matter if it hasn't scaled nationally. Right? You can do some, it, you may never have a website that everybody's coming to or an app that everybody's using. It's you know? never going to happen again. Right, that's fine. That scale, that sense of scale. And that's, and that's 
Not only is that okay, but it's better. And then that's the, the question I'm really wrestling with now and that a lot of the listeners of Team Human are wrestling with. The, the most common email I get are from people with businesses that don't want to scale, right? A, a wonderful woman, um, Suzanne, has a, a green rabbit bread in Vermont. Near, and, and she makes sourdough bread in a solar bakery. And she, it's harder and she can't just stay the same size because of all the kinds of pressures there are on businesses to grow. Um, I'm, I'm real interested in how we promote sustainable sized businesses. And I'm thinking the only way we can do it is with sort of networks of these businesses that are interacting with each other rather than, it, you can't just go it alone. You can't start a sustainable you know, bread shop in Manhattan with all the rents going up and, and Starbucks coming next door, the, the pressures and the landlord wanting to make more and they're gonna kick you out because you're just a sustainable business. Um, that, that we're gonna have to somehow uh, network business to, to do that. But I was wondering if you had, I mean, if, if, if your business school, which I still should attend, if there's, if there's people working on how do we create businesses without, without growth? Well. Right size or. So the Alt-MBA is not about external strategy. It's about an internal narrative and how we cut through the myths we tell ourselves, how we make better decisions, how we navigate where we want to go. Strategically, though, there are more successful small businesses than most people think. The, the challenge is not how do we resist the pressure to grow, it's how do we find the guts to not be average? Because the pressure is to be average. Because the promise is if you're average, then you'll reach mass. And if you're mass, you win, right? So it's interesting. Why would Howard Schultz shut down Starbucks eight years ago for the day to teach everyone how to make coffee? There were way more efficient ways to do that. The reason he did it was he was firing a shot over the bow of his middle managers and his senior managers saying, all right, kids, you just made me light $100 million on fire because you've been making average coffee for average people. I'm going to put on a show to shame you for doing that. Mm. We're going to lose all this money in public because I want to send a message to everyone who works here that we're not going to be average. And so there are people who don't like Starbucks. Great, because I don't want them to like the coffee. It's for these people, not those people. So Starbucks does that at scale. Mm. But you know, there's bakery on the Upper West Side or there's a gym on the Lower East Side. It's not for everybody. That's hard. It's not hard because of the bank. It's hard because we're filled with shame and we don't want to be seen and we're afraid and we want to fit in. And so part of what you're describing in your book that really uh, inspired me is you're saying, here's a look at the external world. Here's a look at all the gears that are turning that are playing to the thing we were already wanting to do, mm. which is to fit in and be a cog. And the reason we want to do that is we've been brainwashed to do that since we were three. And you know, once you see it, you'll see it everywhere. You'll, it's pathetic to watch the way people talk to their two-year-olds now. Mm. Because they're, from the earliest possible age, saying, be normal, fit in, wear this outfit, do this thing. And so it's not hard for a social network to show up and say, great, you can keep being like that. It's really hard for someone like you to show up and say, be weird, find the others, publish, learn to program, be in the world. And everyone would say, no, I can't, it's too late. And my job is to say it's not too late, that you just have to find the guts, at least right now, 
because you have something to say. Right, and we can say that, I mean, and we kind of have to say it en masse at this point, that to our little civilization, it's not too late. We're, we're not so far down this road that we can't retrieve what it means to be human before we, we detach into total, full-on algorithmic hypnosis. We still, there's enough of us around, and this is what I've been saying lately, I used to be the guy who would tell people about the digital future that they hadn't experienced yet, because I'd been online. I would get laughed out of rooms for saying, you're gonna be using email someday, or they're working on something on the West Coast, which is really interesting. I was the weird, now I feel like I'm the last guy who remembers what it was like an to be human. Exactly. Now I'm an altercocker, right? And I'm like, no, wait a minute. There was this world where people just like, should we take interacted? Questions? Yeah, let's let's and uh, to wit, let's be in that in that world of, of interaction. Isn't our capitalist system anathema to small businesses, being human, building technology for people? It, it, it's it's telling our uh, our companies that we're building go faster, go scale, 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 faster, 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 more money, more money, more money. Did you get that one? Is this in the DNA of capitalism? Um, it's in the DNA of capitalism when capitalism only recognizes the capitalist. Right? What Adam Smith said is that, that the, there's three factors of production, land, labor, and capital. So if all three have a seat at the table, then that's fine. But right now in most Silicon Valley companies, the capitalist is the only one who gets to say what's happening. We gave you the money, so you need to do this. You need to hit a home run. You need to you know, return 100x or 1,000x. Um, and it doesn't have to be that way. Hi. Over, so you talked a lot about things moving in a direction of, of, I guess, the opposite of team human. I'm also curious about, lately I've been seeing things moving in the direction of, of more human, like slow food, minimalism, self-directed education, and... Or it, in my life, I feel like it's getting more and more and more as I discover it. Fewer apps and things like that. Am I going against? Am I happen to be going against the tide, or is is there also hope in that direction? What do you think of, the, of things like that? It's hard to know what's the tide and what's the undertow, right? I mean, I love the idea of deciding. I live in a world where the humans are in ascendance. That look, this is the we are getting to witness. The turn. This is the turning moment. You were here the night that this is the, this is the tipping point of human civilization away from capitalist extraction and automation and towards a genuinely human-centered focus. I'm there. You're Gavrilo Princip right at the key moment. I mean, it's, it's hard to know, right? I mean, the, the trick is I could pretty easily surround myself entirely with people who are playing the good game, you know, are, are, I could you spend time at the CSA and my yoga class and, you know, get a goat share and, you know, do all, all that stuff and start, yeah, I mean, and, and I certainly want to feed my humanity with more and more of that and live that, but at the same time, there's, uh, I feel like there's some macro, there's a lot of people who aren't yet on board. There are a lot of people who are still uh, afraid. You know, sometimes I put on the news and it's like this weird guy's president and people are fighting about awful things and they're scared of Mexican invasions and um, there's a lot of, lot of fear out there. But yeah, the more, the, the more fun that we have, the more seductive being human is going to look. Hi everyone. 
I'm super excited to be here and meet you guys in person, the flesh. So there's a couple of things I want to pull on. Like one is around this whole idea of more silence and really connecting with each other more. And it sounds like maybe we should have more yoga and more yoga studios or more yoga classes in corporate offices. I don't know, that might be a direction. The other thing is there's also kind of drawing on your idea around like going back to the Middle Ages where people used to actually create things and feel like they were of value just because they were able to create and use their talents is, you know, is the, is the move towards kind of the side hustle and what people are trying to do on the side and like have more fulfillment in there? Is this kind of an, a direction there? And then I was just thinking if we bring these two ideas together, yeah, one around, perfect. yeah, one around like corporate uh, sustainability around like helping human people to feel more human at work and also bringing in their uh, talents that are external if that's something that could appeal to the capitalist mind right as we kind of move forward thanks yeah I mean sure if you oh you do yoga and you're gonna increase your productivity of your workers and have less health things no, 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 it's gonna be good on the bottom line you know it's a it's always it's always a good argument for them. You know, the, the, the interesting thing, the thing that you made me think about is this sort of, this fear of joblessness and, and the jobless future and all that. And I think we're so far, we're so far away from any kind of a jobless future because all of these side hustles, as you're calling them, are ultimately more efficient, more sustainable, more resilient ways to do things. You know, if we're moving into a jobless future, then why are we polluting the world as badly as we are. We're polluting the world, we're destroying the topsoil because we're afraid of labor-intensive methods. You know, so yeah, if it takes a little bit longer to grow food in a way that restores the soil, or you need a few more people there actually working, or skilled workers doing it, working with their hands who love it, that's not a bad thing, but a good thing. You know, the only ones who see it as a bad thing are, are, are Don, you know, capitalists who are trying to who are, well, the ones you're talking about, who are trying to, to reduce the short-term bottom line and externalize the actual cost of what they're doing. So I think the side becomes the real thing, you know? And I, but I understand, I mean, the people who are the most afraid of this kind of talk are the people who are like working in a cubicle doing like some weird like mortgage actuarial analysis seed swap credit thing, you know, that, that they really don't believe, they know doesn't actually provide any value or create anything. And look, they look at Walking Dead or something and, sh and think, shit, you know, how would I contribute in that society? I don't know how to grow anything. I don't know how to I mean, do this anything. This goes back to the yeah. weird thing. If you are competent, you're doomed. Because mm. I can get competent on Fiverr cheaper than you, and I can get competent from a computer cheaper than you. So the people who get among labor, who get to demand a life, aren't the ones who fit in all the way. They're ones who stand out all the way. Which means that there is, we use this word talent in lots of different ways. It really means skill. The people who are truly skilled, off the charts skilled at a specific, as opposed to a general, have a lot of cards and will have for a long time to come. And the, the pathetic thing is we're not training our kids to do that. We're training them to be competent generalists as opposed to incompetent, skilled, edge cases. But those are the people that have a waiting list and can demand yoga for three hours a day, right? But if you don't, then the system, the one that he's so beautifully described in this book, by the way, don't take one of the free books. Go, take your phone out, buy this from Amazon. If everyone in the, room, both. If everyone in the room bought just this one room, yeah. 
bought this book, on Amazon? it would be number one in the category of polemics about the chain of the world. <laughs> it would be a number one bestseller. <laughs> no, it's funny, because it's the number one, I don't even know what this means, it's the number one new release in, what is it, the social theory of sociology. Yay! <laughs> the number one what bestseller. <laughs> what else we got? Uh, hi, how you hey. doing? Sorry. Uh, I feel like with most scaling, the value always goes down for the most part. Like, story is always lost. For, for me, community is the answer because um, I grew up in Whitestone too. Huh. And uh, to me, I feel the most lonely I've ever felt in New York in my whole life. It just feels like I don't know anybody and everything's online. And I just feel like I, I spend all my money at coffee and all the little shops because I want to interact with everybody. So I feel like community would be a good way to kind of beat the, the scaling value that is like uh, where maybe you give people in the neighborhood a discount at local places and you keep the money inside. So then instead of wanting to move to Williamsburg, it's like, you know, I want to go create my own Williamsburg or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of efforts to, uh, uh, you know. You can go to the central banking thing now. Oh, yeah? Well, I mean, it's brilliant. I mean, but that, that, just, that has to do with scale, with growth. I mean, the, the, when, they made, when they made money illegal, local monies illegal, and replaced them with central currency, um, what you ended up getting was, was the, the, there was a growth mandate, because it was really a way for wealthy people to get wealthy by having money. So if you just had a king who could now lend money into existence for interest, you know, then he's got a terrific extractive platform, and now you have an economy that has to grow, and that's how you take over all these other places. And it worked as long as we were growing, and it stopped working when people started to push back. So now in order to grow, we're using technologies that are, that are colonizing the surface area of human attention rather than surface area of the planet, and we're freaking out. What, you know, one solution to localism is local currencies, is to start to have, whether it's a favor bank or a local money, it's really hard to get people to have have faith in them or to 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 want to use them they're they're a lot harder to to implement than one would think and usually they'll only work if money has gotten so expensive for people that they need now they realize oh we have a town and we have people with skills and people with needs they just need a means of exchange so that you just you just create one you just create credit but you're also falling in, you're also falling into a rushkoff trap when you say Merchants giving a discount, right? Like, your honesty is terrific, but everyone in this room feels lonely. And the solution is not to wait to be found. The solution is to find the other. And when you start seeing other people outside of the world of transaction and say, let's go for a walk around the block, it costs nobody nothing, and it's scale. And we are all busy living in a really crowded city ignoring each other. And there's so many opportunities to not do that, but it's scary. And right. there's no commercial component to push us forward. And that's exactly why you should do it, because right. there is no commercial component. It's scary, though. It's scary. I remember you know, way back when, when uh, uh, there was an old lady down the hall, and when my wife had our baby, and this old lady, you know, God, God knows how many kids she had, she wanted to show my wife how to breastfeed. But it's not what you do these days. Not, you, know, you hire a lactation consultant. Yeah, and you put it on your insurance. It's a whole thing to teach you how to breastfeed. And why don't you want the old lady to do it? Because, well, 
the old lady does it for us, then well, she's in our life, she's in our world, then she's going to want to come over, you know, at Christmas time and sing show tunes in our house, or, you know, and it's like we are saying no to the stuff that we, we're happy to watch it on TV and think, oh my God, what a happy, loving home they have. It's like, and it's here, we're here, we're here. You know, it's not, whenever I've dealt with people who are, are I'm talking about favors and all, there's many, many, many people willing to do favors. The harder thing to find is the people willing to accept the favor, oddly enough, because they're, am I gonna owe something? What does that mean? And that's, well, yeah, let people do stuff for you. Let's you know? go on, we're gonna keep moving as long as they let us to. Hello, uh, Douglas. Um, Hey. This is one of those cheap theaters with the pillars. I, I know you're very interested in religion, and um, and I I, I, know, I personally think that at their best, religions are uh, uh, great human institutions that allow people to interact with each other mm -hmm. and also treat each other as humans. Um, do you do you think that what you're describing is is part of a um, a secularization? And uh, and and sort of second part to the question is. What you were describing as the, the, the original, perhaps, cult in San Francisco, uh, has that, in fact, turned into a sort of religion? Um, so so is, it, it, are those original cults of those sort of uh, techno-utopians now turning into a, a, a much bigger sort of technological religion? Great question. I mean, yeah, I mean, I do see what I'm talking about as the, the function or purpose or reason for religion. And... You know, when I, when I studied the history of Judaism, I looked at it and said, oh, wow, I see what they were really trying to do. You know, I, I looked at, if you look, read, read in, in Torah, in the, in, the, in the Bible, about the, uh, the development of the Jewish, the, the Ark of the Covenant that they built out in the desert. It was exactly like an Egyptian Ark, except unlike the Egyptian Ark of the death cults that they were in, there was no God on the top of the Ark. They describe the whole Ark, and then they say, no, but on the top, don't put the God there. Leave that space empty and protect the empty space with these two cherubs. You know, and cherubs are not little happy. They were little monster kind of things. They're, they're more like gremlins than they are like the babies that we see. Put the little cherubs on either side of that empty space. And, and God says, and there in the empty space between the two cherubs, that's where I'll come to you. So the idea was the way you get God stuff is through the emptiness, through the nothingness. You don't have an idol, a thing, because then you can actually see the other people to take your focus off God up there and back on the, the minion of, of people who gather around it. But it's really hard. I mean, and that's, it's really hard to make the thing and then sustain that sensibility. And ultimately, Judaism then becomes, it's trying to support itself. It's trying to sustain itself. It becomes its own idol. You know, and then the call to, well, you, 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 you got to marry Jewish. You got to Jewish. Or, the, or Judaism itself is at risk. And like Judaism is not the thing. It was, uh, it was that empty space. So, so the reversal tends to happen even in a religion that was developed specifically to prevent idolatry, a religion that was you know, specifically, it, it was developed to be open source, to be hypertext, to be adaptive, to be like a constitution, even it uh, got, uh, at least for the most part, it got, it got stuck in that, in that same place. It's really hard uh, uh, to maintain it with an ism of any kind once you go there. And yeah, the Silicon Valley is a religion. I just wrote this really fun piece for, uh, for Medium about when um, the Russian cosmists 
met the early tech people as part of the two-track diplomacy program at Esalen. And Russian cosmism is a, it's a weird religion. It's sort of, you know, Russian orthodoxy is a, is a kind of Christianity that has personal, um, uh, like, transmutation. It's very Gnostic. And those people came with life extension technology and uh, 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 uploading of human brains. All those ideas were from this Russian cosmist tradition, you know, which was way, you know, it was all century old. But this was in the, in the 70s and 80s. And that kind of mixed with Esalen self-actualization and technology. And we ended up getting this you know, Elon Muskie, Peter Thiele uh, religion, right? which is about, sadly, it's about transcending the body. It's about leaving the chrysalis of matter into pure consciousness, going, you know, it's Google's dream. What is Google building? They're building a home for Ray Kurzweil's brain. <laughs> That's what they're building. I mean, that's it. And that's, that's a religion. You know, if, if, so yeah, there is one. There is one. And it's always, these religions always, you can tell when they're going off courses, is whenever there's no women involved and whenever they're trying to get away from the body. Because they're seeing their body as this weird, shameful thing that we got to get out of because it's temporary and it's going to die and all that. It's like, oh, no. They disconnect it. Hey, guys. Thank you. Um, there's this notion that companies that um, create equity from inequity will be all that create value in the future. So you mentioned that there's a failure of capitalism. Is there another economic incentive structure that you've thought of or that you've come across that possibly would incentivize the creation of these companies that create equity from inequity? Describe equity from inequity. So profiting from division or profiting from fixing? Sorry, go ahead. It's, it's a notion that you're not going to create company. You're not going to create value or create yield for an investor from just building another app. You're going to create value, true meaningful value, from bringing people together, um, finding solutions and services that actually enable humanity and build community and culture. Um, those are the type of companies in the future that will actually create yield instead of economic. Value. So most of the investors that I've known through the years, and I, I mean Fred Wilson on up. Some of them have a, quote, long-term theory about the world, but most of them long-term is four years. So what they're saying is, if I give you $2 million today, will I get back $30 million four years from now? So they're not really thinking on the Rushkoff scale. And I don't think they're evil. I just think the system is organized to say, if you want to make that much money that fast, you have to appeal to people's base instincts because you don't have enough time to weave together something that's going to last a century. I mean, one is, uh, uh, I mean, to orient the philosophy, you, you bring in people like Ari Wallach. He's got this thing called Long Path, which is hopefully going to help re reorient people, reorient businesses and governments to long-termism as a, a way of understanding what they're doing, and to no longer see the long-term as in some conflict with what's happening now, that the very best thing you can do right now, for yourself right now, actually is consonant with your best long-term interests. And it's just so hard for them to see that. They see it as one or the other. The, for, for me, where I've got the most hope and where I see that, where this kind of congruence in companies is in co-ops. You know, when the employees own the company, when the workers own the means of production, you end up getting something different. You know, you could be doing the very same job. I was talking to someone about a, a bike shop 
that got um, all the people were upset, you know, because they, they didn't like their boss. So all the people in the bike shop ended up creating their own cooperative bike shop. And they share the icky tasks that no one wants to do, but they, they're part of their community. So if the work, people working in the company also live in the place where the company operates, then, well, we don't want the company polluting into the topsoil because our kids are drinking the water that's underneath it. So all of a sudden, it's embedded, it's embedded locally. So you know, the, the easiest way to bring the, the land and labor back into the equation is to have a locally run business that's owned by the employees. And you start seeing a whole different value set. The, the other thing is capitalism, for many of its flaws, is in one sense open in the, in, if you think about the fact that people who care about money care about money. So when Eve starts Patagonia, he's an outsider. When an outsider comes into the system with their own proclivities, they can spec. We're not going to try to sell more stuff. We're going to try to sell better stuff. We're going to try to, right? Or go back 100 years to Madam C.J. Walker, our old neighbor, right? She was one of the first millionaires uh, in the United States. And she did it by inventing a franchise that was only to be purchased by black women and maybe their husbands. And as a result, she was able to, because she came from the outside, game the system, because the system didn't care as long as it was working. Mm -hmm. And so that gets back to this idea that individuals program or be programmed. Right. It's, exactly. So right now, Goldman Sachs and the financial industry are the best ones at gaming the system to take companies and use them for the purpose of resource, energy, and capital extraction. It'd be just as easy to go into capitalism and game it for humanity. But isn't it telling you more money, money, money? telling you more humans or be kinder to humans. It's or... not telling you anything. It's not alive. It's a board game. It's a board game that was invented by kings in the 13th century to extract value from the working middle class. It's not alive. The algorithms aren't alive. I mean, we're almost at the point where corporations will have bodies. The internet's the closest thing to a body for a corporation. The 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 algorithm is the closest, really, is the closest thing to a demon that's out there. Here's this thing that knows your weaknesses and is going to try to leverage them in order to promote an agenda that's against your best interests. It's not alive, though. It's not alive. And whatever it's saying to you, la, 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 don't, don't listen. You know, listen, listen loud. There's another, uh, there's another voice. All right. Yeah. What else we got? Yeah. So your solution to linguistic competition with charlatans, especially in the American culture, where it's ultra-commercial and everybody's used to, your hands up in the air, how are you doing tonight, and all that. So then the normal person comes in, and then obviously you're not cool because you talk like a normal person. So the only natural solution that I'm aware of if everything crashes and it's utter desperation, fantasy has no room. Outside of that solution, what do you think? Outside of which? So Outside of the situation where desperation gets people naturally in a spot where charlatans have no room because it's just not. Oh, that I think it feels better to be alive. It feels better to be alive than dead. You know, and I understand why people want to feel dead because being alive is scary, right? Especially in our culture because people, we're scared of women. 
But men are really scared of women. This is a very male-dominated culture. They're afraid of you. They're afraid. They are so afraid of you. Um, and I feel like that's almost 80% of what's manifesting out there is that. But they're afraid of contact. They're afraid of eyes. They're afraid of, they're afraid of the whole thing. Um, but it feels so good to be connected to other people. It just feels so good. And I, I really think the pleasure principle can, can win out. That if you keep giving people tastes of what it's like to be intimate, to be social, to be with, to be with the others, to find another, to experience what is it when someone's pupils are opening to what you're saying and the oxytocin goes through and your mirror neurons are firing. And I mean, wow. I mean, you can have that. You don't have to have a baby to have that. You know, you just you have to connect to another human to have that. And as we get people, I think, less afraid just to sample it, um, the more they're going to try to have it. Hi there. Um, I'm Jeremy from the Next Big Idea Club, just downstairs. Hi. And uh, in last year, um, I had a really interesting conversation with Jaron Lanier, the father of virtual reality, uh, right here at Studios, actually. And he suggested that the whole solution to finding humanism in a digital context is not necessarily outside capitalism. Like he actually suggested that capitalism might be okay and that the real problem is the advertising model, which right now for Facebook, for example, motivates the company to keep users engaged for as long as possible and get them to click on as many ads as possible. And that an elegant solution to that might be just getting people to pay for Facebook as, as counterintuitive as that might seem. A subscription model might actually cause Facebook to get better and a lot uh, more human. Um, and, and I just wanted to get um, your guys' thoughts on that. Like, do you think that maybe a subscription model within the capitalist framework might actually return some human dignity into the equation? I mean, I do like what's on HBO better than what's on most broadcast, but I'm a wealthy, white, college-educated guy who can pay for HBO. So, you know, there's a, there's a balance there of, of, you know, quality and accessibility. Because, uh, uh, yeah, I'm all, I, I, prefer, uh, uh, I prefer for people to pay for the actual thing, you know, <laughs> rather than to be the product of their medium. No, and you can look at the moment when you know the penny newspapers came out, and it was when newspapers were ad supported rather than uh, uh, supported by the readers. And then who are they serving? I mean, yes, but at the same time, then and the founding founding fathers were talking about this. Then you have to figure out a way to subsidize, you know, subsidize these things for for those who can't who can't afford it. You know, advertising has no morals, and it's. <laughs> If you're at a public company, you've already signed up to play this board game. And incrementally, it keeps getting more and more corroded. If it's an open system, it's going to go right to the bottom. CBS in 1980 wasn't an open system. You couldn't put any ad on that you wanted to. And they could only run one ad at a time. So it became a race to the top at, one le at some level. But clearly, you know, the, the bargain of Twitter should be ad supported right there. Well, they didn't have to make that bargain. They could have decided in that, on that key day that we're going to charge the people who use it to publish $50 a month. If they had done that, they would have made half a, million, half a billion dollars a year in profit and be done, right? And it's a service for everybody else. But in terms of Facebook, it's really simple. It's not that hard to make Facebook. Now, now that you've seen Facebook, copying Facebook is not a big project. Betaworks could do it in a month. So they should. And running Facebook 
if you don't have to hire all those people to run the ads, patrol the ads, take the ads, isn't that expensive either. So what we see is that software that was a big deal 20 years ago is now a, you know, a two cent app that you can buy for nothing. There's this new app that, take, that does, uh, gets rid of all the backgrounds of people with hair. Like you press one button, all the retouchers are uh, out of work, boom. That used to cost $1,000, now it's zero. Well, Facebook is zero now. So someone should build one, you should build one, and they don't have any right to win that. It's not a permanent natural monopoly the way it was when they you know, gave Con Ed New York City, because no one wants to run a whole second set of wires, because it costs just as much as the first set. Building a version of Facebook that isn't Facebook, it, the only thing that's keeping it from working are the people in this room. And the founders of Facebook and Google, they knew that advertising was a problem. If you look at the early stuff, when Google is saying why they're going to beat Yahoo, they said it's because they're not going to have advertising. You know, and now they're the biggest advertising company in the world. You know, and when did that, when did that pivot happen? You know, that pivot happened after they needed to earn back, you know, make the 100x or the 1,000x. You know, and that's, that's the sad part, is that it's so hard for these companies just to make enough. There's no enough. Exactly. You know, because of this, this growth mandate. Hello. Hi. Uh, my name is Natalie. Sorry, I'm nervous a little bit. Uh, you mentioned uh, the need of networks for small businesses to support them to survive. Uh, I'm curious, how do you see it and how, how it works? And um, probably what are the first steps how we can implement this? I mean, I was just throwing it out there. Uh, <laughs> I guess, I think what we're talking about... The proof will be left to the reader. Yeah, I think what we're talking about is something called anarcho-syndicalism, if, if you want the Wikipedia term. And the idea is that you have an economy that's dominated by hundreds and hundreds of cottage industries that are all networked with one another. So you look at, say, the Mondragon cooperatives in Spain. It's several hundred cooperatives, some small, some giant, but they support and trade with one another to give themselves a competitive advantage against traditional giant uh, capitalist companies. Even the US Steelworkers now are becoming part of the Mondragon Cooperative, which is or, kind of a Or true hybrid. value hardware. True value hardware. Again, it's a network cooperative, so they have the buying power of a Home Depot, but they're still independently owned uh, franchises. It can. You know, it, it can happen, it can work. It's just, I really, it's just a matter of being able to uh, get the, the advantage of scale with also the advantage of, of local ownership. You know, so it can, it can. It's just, it's just being, being, you know, clever and open and uh, understanding that all these other players are not your competitors. All these other players are those who will help, you know, sustain your prosperity. So are you going to sign books? Yeah, I'm happy to sign some books. I don't think I could personalize every book. Um, but I'm happy to sign books. And I'll, I'll, I'll sign twice if you also buy a book for your friend. Uh, but buy, read it first and then decide. Yeah. Bravo. Good job, man. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that's our show, recorded live at Betaworks Studios in New York City with Seth Godin doing the interviewing and me being interviewed. Thanks a lot for listening to Team Human today. You can find out more about Team Human, including how to support the show, at teamhuman.fm. Team Human is produced by Stephen Bartolome. You're on Team Human. 
our last best hope for peeps. flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.